to two groups in this country, patriots and traitors. No middle ground. Disinformation is not simply lies or falsifications. It is the art of having your enemies say what you want them to say. Who would engage in espionage on Twitter? Who would be that stupid? Not me. It's very important to educate people about these techniques. They have the Great Reset, we have the Great Awakening. Another type of active measure is the agent of influence. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. You know, it's very hard for journalists to accept that this has been going on. What do you get your opinions from? TV? Disinformation is actually a deliberately distorted or manipulated information that is uh, leaked into the communication system of the opponent with the expectation that it would be accepted as genuine information and uh, influence either the decision-making process, for example, or to influence or manipulate public opinion. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. Some questions remain unanswered. What is the effect of all these active measures? I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. On this episode of the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Howard. Dr. Howard is an associate professor of neurology and psychiatry at NYU Langone Health and the chief of neurology at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. He is the author of We Want Them Infected, How the Failed Quest for Herd Immunity Led Doctors to Embrace the Anti-Vaccine Movement and Blinded Americans to the Threat of COVID, as well as Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, a Case-Based Guide to Critical Thinking in Medicine. His latest piece, The Pandemic as Spectacle, takes on calls for debates made by unserious people. We're lucky to have him with us today. Dr. Howard, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. So part of the reason why we wanted to talk to you today is because of your awareness of the harassment online and now even at his home taking place against Dr. Peter Hotez, who's done some amazing work with patent-free vaccines, which have saved countless lives around the world by making those vaccines available in places that otherwise would not have them. Now, it seems that Dr. Hotez has run afoul of anti-vax crank and supposed Democrat RFK Jr., Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, and so many others who think just like them. Dr. Hotez wrote a great blurb for your book, We Want Them Infected, and it seems that you're both admirers of one another's work. What can you tell us about Dr. Hotez and what do the people attacking him get wrong? So Dr. Hotez uh, is an expert in infectious diseases and tropical medicine down in Texas. He developed a patent-free vaccine uh, that has been used in India, and he is a, a, a true vaccine expert who has real-world responsibility for the consequences of his words, uh, unlike the people who we're going to be talking about moving forward. And yeah, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Joe Rogan recently had RFK Jr. on his podcast, and as I'm sure we'll discuss, RFK Jr. is America's uh, leading anti, one of America's leading uh, anti-vaxxers, who is a fountain of bullshit and misinformation. And Joe Rogan invited him onto debate. Elon uh, Musk uh, kind of teased him and said, your refusal to debate means that you can't stand up for your ideas, that you know that you're wrong. And that became a meme uh, on the internet that by refusing to debate RFK Jr., 
Peter Hotez, Dr. Hotez was unwilling or unable to defend his ideas publicly in a live debate, which is also bullshit, as we will discuss. <laughs> yeah, I know I know one account kept a running tally of the money that they were supposedly willing to donate to charity if only Dr. Hotez would would get on and do this debate. But I think most of the sane voices around reminded everyone that even appearing on a stage or on an interview with RFK Jr. is going to legitimize him. And this is not a man we should be legitimizing. Exactly right. And RFK Jr. is someone who, if you saw him on a street corner holding a sign, saying the things that he says, you would instantly recognize this as an unwell person. Uh, He has long been anti-vaccine and it's had real world consequences. In 2019, he traveled to the island of Samoa and met with anti-vaccine activists. And there was a measles outbreak that inevitably followed, killing over 50 children, most of them under the age of four. So, So this is not a good person. This is not someone who's just thinking differently. This is not someone who's just asking questions. And he, he believes batshit crazy things, uh, that there are microchips and vaccines, that it's a Bill Gates plot to depopulate the world. Most recently on uh, Rogan, he claimed that the 1918 flu epidemic was called by flu vaccines, which were non-existent at the, at the time. So he essentially accused vaccines uh, of time travel. Um, <laughs> just these it, it, it insane sorts of things. And to put him on a debate stage with Peter Hotez would be equivalent of putting uh, the people who sent the Mars rover on a debate stage with a flat earther. It's it, 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 <laughs> exactly as you said. It, it, it kind of elevates two people as equals. You know, when two people get together to debate, there is some sort of baseline assumption, usually, that there's some equivalence that that each side is making a, a reasonable case. And that's just not the case here. Yeah. And we often focus on some of the right wingers who have blended politics and culture into a type of very profitable content mill. The big names we cover include guys like Steve Bannon, Alex Jones, Charlie Kirk, Tucker Carlson, although there are many, many others, unfortunately. How often do these people overlap with your work and research into the anti-vax movement? So quite a bit. I have been studying the anti-vaccine movement for about 10 years uh, after a doctor that I trained with, a woman by the name of uh, Kelly Brogan, who incidentally is the only doctor who I ever write about who I've met personally. So nothing uh, that I ever write about is personal. But um, I, I knew her here at NYU and she she trained with me. And after she left and after she no longer uh, had real world responsibility for treating sick people, she morphed into one of the country's leading anti-vaccine doctors. Uh, She uh, does not believe, like Robert Kennedy, that uh, HIV causes AIDS. She's a germ theory denialist, and she became kind of famous. She's a brilliant speaker. She is very comfortable on the stage. She was platformed by Goop uh, and and Gwyneth Paltrow. And and, and previously, this is what most people thought of as the anti-vaccine movement, sort of these rich white celebrities in Beverly Hills who were into wellness and yoga and refused to vaccinate their kids because they wanted everything natural. And there was some truth to that. But you're absolutely right that this sort of back to nature wellness movement has really overlapped with these right wing provocateurs, as you discuss. And interestingly, that's kind of been the case longer 
uh, than a lot of people kind of appreciate. Um, a lot of fascism out of Europe was based on this idea of purity. And that is very true with the anti-vaccine movement today, that by injecting children with vaccines, you are injecting them with toxins and you are making them impure, whereas anything a virus can do is natural and nothing natural can be bad for you. So there's there's a lot of overlap between these worlds. And I, I'm, I'm sure you guys have, have commented on how RFK Jr. has met with people like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and Donald Trump mm-hmm. and maybe being bankrolled by them. Who knows? This is more of a, something for an investigative journalist to cover. But, but these worlds are, are, are largely overlapping uh, at this point, which, and I think it's going to have, it already has, but it's going to have more catastrophic consequences in the future, I'm afraid. So let's talk about your book for a minute here. You wrote a book called We Want Them Infected, How the Failed Quest for Herd Immunity Led Doctors to Embrace the Anti-Vaccine Movement and Blinded Americans to the Threat of covid can you tell us how your background and personal experience led you to write this book? Yeah, so after, I, I think I bring two things to this. And first of all, let me explain the title, because the title of the book is meant to be taken very literally. There was a movement, and it still exists, to purposefully infect unvaccinated children, young adults, even young middle-aged people uh, with COVID with the idea that by spreading the virus, we would get rid of the virus. And they promised herd immunity in three to six months. So that quote comes from a man by the name of Dr. Paul Alexander, who at the time was an epidemiologist and official in the Trump administration, the Department of Health and Human Services. And on July 4th, 2020, before anyone had been vaccinated, he said, infants, kids, teens, young people, young adults, middle-aged with no conditions, have zero to little risk. So we use them to develop herd. We want them infected. And because of my personal acquaintance with with Kelly Brogan back in 2010, I became very interested in the anti-vaccine movement. And I do not consider myself an expert on vaccines per se, but I learned how to debunk all of the main anti-vaccine arguments. And in 2018, I wrote a book uh, chapter with law professor Dorit Reese about debunking anti-vaccine misinformation. So it was this very quirky interest of mine. I, it was kind of what I think most doctors kind of viewed it as stamp collecting or like, okay, that's interesting that you're into that, <laughs> but it's not super important. But whatever, it prepared me very well for this moment. The second credential that I bring is I worked in New York City throughout COVID. So I worked throughout New York City's COVID deluge to be totally honest with you, I think um, after June 2020, we had it uh, probably easier than almost everywhere else in the country. But during the spring of 2020, our entire city, every hospital was taken over by COVID, COVID, and nothing but COVID. And that did not allow me to predict the fate of uh, the course of the pandemic any better than anyone else. But I saw what the virus could do with my own eyes, as did thousands of others. I saw that, yeah, it was mostly older people with underlying conditions who were affected by this virus, but not exclusively. I saw uh, a handful of young people really suffer. And the youngest person I saw die was a 23-year-old with no underlying medical condition. So it gave me a little bit of respect and a little bit of humility for what this virus could do. And I, I began to see as the pandemic progressed, doctors who never risked anything themselves, doctors who were sheltered from the consequences of their words, 
really plagiarized Kelly Brogan's pre-pandemic anti-vaccine arguments about the MMR vaccine, about the polio vaccine, about the HPV vaccine. They plagiarized her probably unknowingly and repurposed her anti-vaccine ideas for the pandemic. And it's been very influential. Pediatric vaccine rates are very low and it's led to need, not a ton, but needless suffering and death, which is horrible. It's the exact opposite of what doctors should do. Yeah, I think that does get lost sometimes, just the the damage that is done and, and the hurt and pain that is completely avoidable um, if children would just get the vaccines mm-hmm. that they need to prevent serious illness. And I feel like it just doesn't get talked about enough or it's it's hard to quantify it. It's hard to, you know, place the blame directly on anyone. So it just kind of it's there and it's it's under the surface, but not enough people are aware of it. And I just, it's so, it's so damaging and, and it's, and it's scary because it does feel like it's growing. And I guess you said that you've been um, following and studying the anti-vax movement for about 10 years now. Um, So how much do you think COVID-19 changed the state of misinformation and perhaps the popularity of the anti-vax movement? Yeah. So in my book, um, I talk about things that I got wrong. I talk about things that doctors got wrong and I hold myself to the same standards that I do everyone else. And definitely one of the things that I got wrong uh, was I underestimated the anti-vaccine movement. Um, I knew that as soon as COVID hit, there would be a deluge of misinformation about it. And indeed, anti-vaxxers were preparing to fight the uh, COVID vaccine. Months in spring of 2020, before anyone had even developed a COVID vaccine, they were organizing and marshalling their forces. I thought that once people saw their loved ones die of COVID, they would prefer a needle to a coffin. But that didn't turn out to be the case for hundreds of thousands of Americans who denied COVID with their last breath and seemed determined to take as many people with them as possible. Uh, We all remember that, I think, probably during the summer of 2021, when the Delta variant arrived, Mm -hmm. the conservative talk show host was America's most dangerous profession. And not (laughs) every one of those lives could have been saved with the vaccine. You know, you said uh, something along the lines of the vaccine would completely eliminate, uh, you know, COVID's harms. That's not quite true. You know, some vaccinated children have died of COVID, but it drastic, it's kind of like a seatbelt. It drastically reduces the risk of rare but grave outcomes in children. And in 2019, uh, we had a measles outbreak here in New York City, and I would have been rightly viewed as a quack if I had said, oh, it's just a small number of children, oh, zero children died, which was true, fortunately, during our 2019 measles outbreak, no children died. As a matter of fact, I think it's been almost 30 years uh, since any child has died of measles in the United States. But had I said in 2019, it's acceptable that a small number of children get measles just because it's just a small number, that, that would have Again, I would have been seen correctly uh, as a complete quack. I would have been a pariah in the medical community. But that idea is now mainstream and doctors from UC, I, I, sh- I should say it's not quite mainstream. It's still a small number of doctors, but doctors from our top medical schools, Harvard, Stanford, uh, UCSF and Johns Hopkins have all voiced anti-vaccine ideas for children that if they had said this about measles or HPV a couple of years ago, they would have been branded as pariahs. But now they're given audiences with the president, with Ron DeSantis. They are given editorial space in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. 
Yeah, and that that is um, interesting that you you bring up the there are some high profile examples of doctors who really put their name out there, spread these talking points, and were kind of the face of the anti-vax movement. Even if that's probably a term, oh, we're you know they wouldn't they wouldn't accept that term, they wouldn't claim that mantle. But I, I listened to you on the Conspirituality podcast, and one of the things that stuck with me is something we talk about a lot on this podcast is how people turn to extremism or turn to misinformation, become part of the content mill. And I, I think it was interesting for you to mention the draw of Fox News showing it up at your home and and setting up a studio and these these big events that people will go speak at and, and they'll be treated like a celebrity. And I guess it is just another facet that is fascinating that we, I don't know that we spend enough time talking about because we, we focus on some of the money or, or just some of the extremism that seeps into the conversation, but they are a, a form of celebrity, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, certain doctors, uh, Peter McCullough or Peter Corey or Robert Malone uh, have become kind of pandemic celebrities. They have very large social media followings. Our Jay Bhattacharya, our Martin Kuldorf, we can talk about these guys more uh, in, in coming up. They have made dozens of YouTube videos. They have been invited to conferences. They've been invited to speak with, as I, as I mentioned, President Trump and Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin. Uh, they've been invest, uh, invited to testify in front of Congress and in courts. Uh, and it can be very gratifying to be told you're a brave truth teller and everyone is wrong but you, et cetera, et cetera all while having no real world responsibility for the consequences of your words. None of these doctors watched an unvaccinated patient die, regretting their decision not to get vaccinated with their last breath. And we don't hear from those voices anymore. People who died of COVID and regret not getting the vaccine aren't around to speak about their regret. I wonder what they would say. Yeah, definitely. It seems like that would be something that you would... If you tried to articulate that, particularly on social media, you would get mocked or laughed at for for even bringing that up, which is so so terrible that that's the state of our discourse. But you're right. Um, you are trying to give these people a voice when so often they're just forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not trying to paint myself to be a, you know, some sort of hero and speaking sure. for the dead, uh, but, but it's just that their voices are, are, are absent. So uh, a lot of the doctors who I discuss, uh, uh, the names I just mentioned, you know, they claim to be silenced and censored, uh, this <laughs> sort of thing. They are professional victims, of course, uh, when really, you know, the voices uh, who have been silenced, including doctors, including colleagues who I worked with, are, are those who died of COVID. And, you know, we shouldn't forget them. And those of us who knew them will never forget them. Absolutely. So can you explain to people how the science changed during the early days of the pandemic, not because of deliberate lying, but because the facts on the ground continued to change and evolve? And why don't more people understand that scientists did their best early on with COVID, but there was so much in the beginning that was simply unknowable? Yeah, so I I think that there's a a lot of blame to go around for this. Uh, This was everyone's 
first pandemic. No one knew exactly what was going to happen. And a lot of people uh, made a lot of very overconfident predictions. And some of those people were willing uh, to to revise their opinions as facts on the grounds changed, uh, and, and other people weren't. But Doctors were very used to this. We're very used to medical advances and discoveries changing how we think about diseases. For example, I'm a neurologist. The main disease that I treat is multiple sclerosis, which is this disease that everyone has heard of. It's a well-known, famous disease, which has been described for the past 150 years. And over the course of the past decade, the very definition of the disease has changed in subtle but important ways. There have been 10 new drugs, or more than that, uh, to, to treat the disease. So doctors are very used to basic things changing about our profession. And we're very used to dealing with uncertainty. Uh, again, maybe this reflects my, my uh, career as a neurologist more than say as an ophthalmologist who removes cataracts. But I treat rare diseases all the time. I, I treat things for which there isn't a super ton of evidence to guide us. But the public isn't used to that. They're, they're used to, you know, an aspirin cuts your risk of heart attack by 23%, th th this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and in a pandemic with a rapidly changing, completely unpredictable virus, what was true of the virus three years ago is no longer true. And of course, it's not just the virus has changed, the population has changed. There's probably not a human being on the planet who doesn't have some immunity to COVID by now, either through the virus or through the vaccine. And things that were originally true, such as the original mRNA studies, which showed that the vaccine was 95% effective against preventing cases of COVID, those studies weren't wrong. They were true for the virus that has been that was circulating at the time. But with new variants, unfortunately, that data rapidly became obsolete. And it led many people to conclude doctors and scientists have no idea what they are doing. I, I do think there were some irresponsible communicators who said a month after the studies were published, that uh, they are going to be 100% effective, that they are going to end the pandemic. And I should add, these are the doctors who I write about. B these are some of the misinformation doctors who wildly overpromised the efficacy of the vaccines. Uh, I was trying to be very careful at that time and just said, you know, to the extent anyone was listening to me, said, let's just wait and see. <laughs> let's just wait and see. I'm optimistic about what yep. they're going to do, that they're going to cut transmission, uh, but I'm not sure. And so the, the vaccines were new, the virus was new, the virus was changing and the population was changing. And it just led unfortunately a lot of people to conclude that doctors and scientists just don't know what they're talking about, which you know, for a new virus and a new vaccine was probably true. And we should have done a better job of communicating uncertainty about that. But we, we still see videos pop up, memes pop up, quoting things that Anthony Fauci or other doctors said early on in the pandemic of uh, things that may have been true at the time or were true for a certain amount of time. And it's all used to sow this distrust, which is just everywhere. And it is really unfortunate because they're wrapped up in all of this is this assumption that you are acting in bad faith, that all doctors who go against the misinformation, essentially narrative are acting in bad faith and, and even with Dr. Hotez, he's he's being accused of uh, being a shill for big pharma <laughs> when the opposite <laughs> is true, is it not?
he gave away his vaccine for free. Um, and anyone who accuses vaccine advocates of being a shill for big pharma automatically tells me they've never treated uh, a sick COVID patient and seen the enormous amount of medications that these patients receive in the hospital. So uh, one of my articles on the website, Science-Based Medicine, was called The Anti-Vaccine Movement Supports Big Pharma, which is absolutely true. If there were no vaccines, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of more Americans would have been hospitalized. And here in the hospital, a single Tylenol pill can cost $15. Uh, to say nothing of all the sedatives they receive, some of the very expensive $1,000 monoclonal antibodies. So anti-vaxxers are clearly un unknowing to them uh shields for 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 big pharma and you know you spoke about you know the clips of fauci you know being taken in from early in the pandemic are, are possibly out of context as well well you know interestingly when vaccines first came out and the and, and people were getting vaccinated in the spring of 2021, uh, he encouraged Americans to continue following mitigation measures, to continue wearing masks, for example. And he was mocked at that time. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya called him uh, the number, the country's number one anti-vaxxer because it was felt that he was not, by, by, by saying vaccines weren't perfect, he was discouraging vaccine use. And that became a very popular meme amongst the right-wing doctors at the time who who said, who said throughout the pandemic, it's ending, it's ending, and end, it's ending, that if you said anything that was imperfect about the vaccine, you were an anti-vaxxer because you were discouraging vaccination use. Those same doctors are now saying, oh, they promised us it would stop transmission. They promised us it would end the pandemic. So they kind of want to have their cake and, and, and eat it too. Um, and one of my articles for Science-Based Medicine is just quotes from these doctors in 2021 saying, you know, the vaccine is 100% effective, it's going to end the pandemic, and then quotes from them in 2022 and 2023 saying, anyone who said that was spreading the worst misinformation, that they count on people as having very short memories for what they said. And that's been a very good calculation on their part. Uh, most people do have very short memories, and people have sometimes scolded me for bringing up these quotes as if it's ancient history. <laughs> they, they really do not like it when you no. use their own words against them. And that's all I do. You know, half of the book uh, is just their own quotes. Uh, about 20 pages of it are, are just quotes starting in March, uh, March 2020 uh, of these doctors saying the pandemic is over, that the worst is behind us. And that's why no one has uh, attempted a, a uh, meaningful refutation of my book. Uh, instead, they uh, put words in my mouth to argue against things that I never said. The number of people who said I was a huge proponent of school closures, uh, for example, uh, it, it's very large because everyone knows, you know, that would make me sort of look like a villain. Uh, I never once called for schools to be closed and it wouldn't have had any real effect anyway. It's not like the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, was listening to me at the time. Uh, so I, I, I didn't say anything on the subject, um, but that hasn't stopped them from claiming I wanted lockdowns forever and people to never go to school again or enjoy life again. Uh, so they're, they're, they are, are using straw man arguments because they can't stand up for their own words. They, they can't defend them saying two years ago, we have herd immunity. So I think there's still a good bit of concern out there related to COVID vaccines, especially for children. And you recently wrote an article titled three new studies show that the COVID vaccines are very safe for children. Can you run us through that a bit and tell us why you agree with these conclusions? 
Well, yeah, it's not a, a matter of me agreeing or disagreeing. That's what the studies show. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about pediatric COVID. So the only good thing to say about COVID is that it's benign for the vast majority of children. Every My children had it. My nieces and nephews had it, some of them before they were vaccinated, and I wasn't particularly worried about them. Uh, however, there are 73 million American children and uh, rare events multiplied by 73 million times adds up. So the exact number of pediatric fatalities isn't known. There's ways that you can undercount and overcount pediatric deaths, but around 2,000 children have died in the past three years. And that number would have been much higher had none been vaccinated, had we allowed it to rip through the pediatric population at the start of the pandemic, as a lot of people advocated. So um, that compares to the toll of many other vaccine preventable diseases before there was a vaccine available. And of course, death is not the only bad outcome from COVID. Hundreds of thousands of children have been hospitalized, some of them very sick, uh, needing uh, intubation in the ICU, for example. I'm glad that you brought that up because it does feel like the discussion tends to veer into either you die or you're fine. But there are so many people, including children, who are suffering from long COVID or other symptoms that that just don't get mentioned enough. Absolutely right. That's one of the the, the big problems with the, 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 the doctors who I discuss is they don't consider any uh, the, the fact that a child or really anyone might survive COVID but be injured by it. And children have had seizures and strokes and amputations and, of course, long COVID. And we're going to be learning about the consequences of repeat infections for the rest of our lives. It wasn't until 2019, for example, that we learned that measles uh, really wreaks havoc on the immune system. So if a baby is born today, how many times will she be infected with COVID by the time she's 20? And what are going to be the consequences of that? I don't want to fear monger. I read about all these, you know, people on Twitter saying, oh, they're all going to have Alzheimer's by the age of 20. I mean, who knows? But I think we have to be humble and at least consider the possibility that 10 COVID infections in 20 years isn't going to be the best thing for developing children. And the vaccine has already been shown in multiple studies to not perfectly eliminate COVID's grave harms, but to drastically reduce them. And the COVID vaccine was studied in uh, randomized controlled trials, really the gold standard in medicine in just under 25,000 children. There were six separate trials of uh, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine in three separate age groups, teenagers, elementary school children, and babies and toddlers. And it has subsequently been shown to drastically reduce the risk of these grave outcomes of death, of hospitalization, uh, and this post-inflammatory condition called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which has affected about 10,000 American children and killed about 80 uh, children so far. With the Omicron variant and with the variant circulating today, just like for adults, the vaccine has lost some efficacy. So again, it's not a perfect, it's not a thing, it's not a magic bullet, but is it, it, it's better than, than nothing. And in terms of the side effects, the one side effect that has really emerged is vaccine myocarditis. And if you run the numbers, it occurs at about one in 15,000 children, which uh, and occurs mostly in teenage males after their second vaccine dose. So you, one can ballpark that about a thousand children uh, have been affected by vaccine myocarditis. So that's not nothing, but it's half as many as the number of children who died of COVID. 
And most children, about 95%, if not higher, uh, have a very favorable course with vaccine myocarditis. This doesn't come from me. This comes from every study on this subject. I could sit and read about 20 studies right now uh, showing that most children do fine after a couple days. Catastrophic outcomes are literally one in a million. Uh, I've heard about maybe one or two children who have plausibly died after the vaccine. There are more plausible deaths in young adults, but in terms of, of deaths, and that, when I say one or two, I mean literally around the world. So I don't want to minimize vaccine myocarditis, but in the last study from Canada, 56% of children with it were sent home from the emergency room. They weren't even admitted to the hospital. And those who were admitted went home after one day. They'll have to be followed over the long term to make sure that there's no cardiac scarring that can lead to an arrhythmia. But that's true for COVID as well. So I've been accused by, of minimizing vaccine myocarditis by doctors who have literally minimized death from COVID. So they will say deaths from COVID are vanishingly rare, which is true. Uh, but then they'll talk about the side effect is literally a fate worse than death. And that's how Kelly Brogan spoke about the measles vaccine and the HPV vaccine before the pandemic. That's what I mean about her ideas and RFK's ideas becoming mainstream. So have you seen attacks like what Dr. Hotez has faced in the last week before? If so, how much bigger is the scale of the current attacks that we're seeing against him? Yeah, so unfortunately I have, not, not personally, but uh, anti-vaxxers, not all, uh, but but some of them tend to be very nasty people. I think it kind of uh, attracts that. And, uh, you know, I always like to try to think, uh, you know, the best about some of the people who, who I disagree with. And, you know, potentially some of them believe that vaccines have crippled their children, that this is all being denied, and that there's a big conspiracy, and that doctors are in on it, that they're indifferent to it. So people who really believe that, you understand some of their anger uh, and, and their rage. And yeah, they have attacked doctors previously. Dr. Richard Pan, who is a, I think he's a pediatrician, but he's a, a California state senator who worked to strengthen the vaccine exemptions after a measles outbreak at Disney World in 2014. Uh, he was attacked uh, on the street. Someone threw a cup of menstrual blood at him. I mean, disgusting stuff. Um, Dr. Paul Offit at times has needed security. Uh, he is a uh, vaccine expert in, uh, in Philadelphia, and all of us are used to getting uh, horrible things said about us online. Uh, I've only become kind of a public target semi-recently, and I get it a lot less than some women vaccine advocates, such as the my co-author, uh, Dory Reese, or there's an Orthodox Jew woman here by the name of Blima Marcus, who became an outspoken vaccine advocate in her community after the 2019 measles outbreak in the Hasidic community. And she was a target of vile uh, threats and, and, and hate. Uh, I, I think it's growing. I think people are feeling emboldened by it. And I, I hope I'm wrong, but it, it's potentially just a matter of time until this really spills out into the real world uh, and someone famous is attacked, although that's already happened uh, with, with, with less famous people, uh, not, not big names like Peter Hotez, but, but uh, you know, vaccination clinics have been disrupted and pharmacists have been attacked. So it's, it's, it's a big problem and it, it's not just idle chatter on social media, unfortunately. 
Well, and it seems like a lot of the criticisms of Dr. Hotez from the right, from the anti-vaxxers seem to say that, well, he he won't have a debate with RFK Jr. because Dr. Hotez knows he can't win. He knows that his arguments just won't hold up. And it's absurd, but it is it is something that they're they're pushing and spreading and they've convinced their audience that, you know, if the vaccines were were so good and useful and helpful, well, this it would be easy to win a debate. But science isn't usually settled in a debate moderated by someone like Joe Rogan. Now, is it? (laughs) I can't think of any other scientific question which has been settled that way. I mean, of course, debates are important in science where there is genuine disagreement. Uh, They're featured in journals, they're featured at medical conferences. But, you know, you said that anti-vaxxers feel that if the truth is on Peter Hotez's side, he'll have no problem winning a debate. But that's not true because debates, especially verbal debates, especially one that's probably going to be moderated rather informally by someone like uh, Joe Rogan, verbal debates do not reward the person with the best information. They reward the slickest speaker. So if I was to argue the anti-vaccine position, I am so knowledgeable on the subject that I'm sure I could win a debate with 99% of doctors if I just pretended to to, to be an anti-vaxxer and and spoke all of their talking points because I can do it off the top of my head in in an instant. But the, of course, I would not be right. And live debates favor pseudoscientists. They favor anti-vaxxers because anti-vaxxers can lie they can distort things. I remember one of my first sort of aha moments with the anti-vaccine movement was I read this uh, list of 200 evidence-based reasons not to vaccinate your children by a anti-vaccine advocate and former husband of Kelly Brogan, a man by the name of Sayer G, who became one of the disinformation dozen during uh. the pandemic. Anyways, so he collected this list of 200 articles, which he felt vaccines were horrible. And one of them was called a measles outbreak occurred in a highly vaccinated population. Okay, so so you read that article, and that doesn't make it look like a vaccine sound very good. When you read the actual article, what it was saying is that measles outbreaks are possible in a highly vaccinated population in a city like New York City, where 95% of children are vaccinated against measles. If the 5% of people children who are unvaccinated against measles cluster together like they did here in the uh, Hasida community in 2019. So it was really saying vaccines work, but if large groups of unvaccinated children cluster together, you can still have outbreaks. But Mr. G rearranged the title of that article to trick people. And someone like RFK Jr. is a master at that, just a fountain of bullshit and misinformation that you can't refute in real time. And even if his bullshit is refuted, if he says it in a very convincing way, he'll convince a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I have agreed to debate anyone via any of my articles. So anyone can write a refutation to any one of my 100 articles on science-based medicine. And for the first time, someone took me up on this, an anti-vaccine businessman by the name of Steve Kirsch, who's become kind of an outspoken person. And I'm preparing my response to, to his response. And I'm just writing, my article is going to be 
five pages long, and it's based just on one of his paragraphs, just one on just the, the amount of effort that it takes to refute a single piece of misinformation can be overwhelming. And this is known as what's called Brandolini's Law, which states the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than, ne- than that needed to produce it. So <laughs> live debates favor people who are willing to lie, who are willing to distort, and who are willing to omit misinformation, which is another good reason why Dr. Hotez should not dignify this and turn it into a public spectacle and turn it into a performance. Uh, You know, Joe Rogan essentially treated him like a show pony. I demand that you come here and perform for my audience. And there's been a lot of people who have treated the pandemic as a performance and a spectacle which is appalling because they have no real world consequences for their words. So you mentioned RFK Jr. quite a lot here, and it shouldn't really surprise anybody seeing as how the man is a trial lawyer and the man is a Kennedy, that he's pretty slick and can talk a very good game when something like this on the line. Were you really surprised to see him given such a large platform for his presidential run, given his extensive history of spreading conspiracy theories and debunked claims? If you had asked me that question three years ago, I would have said yes. But but these days, I, I think not. Again, we have some of our country's most influential voices, Joe Rogan and Elon Musk, who have who, they claim to be not mainstream media, but they are mainstream. Mm-hmm. They are the media, you know, amplifying his voice. and. You know, obviously his name gives him a lot of credit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that three years ago I would have been surprised. But nowadays I'm, I'm, I'm only grateful he's not beating Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> you know, imagine if I had to vote for Trump versus Kennedy. Holy cow, that, that's a, uh, that would be a, a coin toss or a, a move to New Zealand. I don't know. Canada. It would be a disaster. Canada. It'd be, it'd be great for Steve Bannon, though. You know, he'd be a fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least, uh, at least got one person on the board. Yeah, but I, I did want to talk to you, too, about the Republican primary, because we've discussed it a lot here on this podcast. And one of the things that we've, we've focused on is the fact that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis seem to be fighting part of their campaign over vaccines. But the, the horrifying fact is that it's not a pro and anti argument. They're both anti-vax, but they're essentially trying to outdo one another in terms of things like who pushed the vaccine less or who who listened to Anthony Fauci and who didn't. And they're also arguing over which one of them pushed lockdowns more frequently or wore masks in public more often. All of these things were meant to be life-saving measures taken during an unprecedented situation, especially at the beginning of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. My question is, what do you think the long-term consequences of this are going to be? Well, I'm, I'm not optimistic, and I, I hope I'm wrong about this, but you know, you're right that the state of Florida, uh, under its Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, is now officially anti-vaccine for children when it comes to, to COVID. Uh, he was caught recently 
faking data, essentially, claiming that the vaccine was more dangerous than the virus for children and for young men. And children in his state have suffered and died as a result. And there's no way that this is not going to bleed into routine vaccinations, that once parents are convinced that the FDA, the CDC is lying to them, the American Academy of Pediatricians is lying to them, that their own pediatrician is lying to them. And of course, this is it's not just the United States, which recommends COVID vaccines nearly all, not all, but, but most uh, countries do as well. That is going to bleed into skepticism for measles and HPV vaccines and chickenpox vaccines. So I, I, I'm very pessimistic about this. And I think that future outbreaks are, are inevitable. We already had one during the pandemic. There was a, a measles outbreak in Ohio, which hospitalized I don't know exactly off the top of my head, 80 to 100 children, fortunately, none died. But I think that we're going to be seeing more and more of these in the future, especially since vaccines have become a marker of cultural identity. You know, if I see someone wearing sort of a, a rainbow flag, for example, I, I can tell you 100 things about that person that they're probably not, they probably don't own an AR-15. They're probably <laughs> pro-choice, et cetera. So vaccination, whether you're willing to get one or not, has unfortunately become a cultural marker that if you're willing to protect your child against COVID and measles, that means you also want to make all kids trans, for example. And, and, and so people are, are unfortunately resisting that, and I'm not optimistic about the future. So bringing it back to Dr. Hotez for a second, he tweeted something very interesting yesterday. He mentioned several times that Joe Rogan has his contact information, that RFK Jr. has his contact information. And yesterday he mentioned that it was the NIH who asked apparently Dr. Hotez to speak to RFK Jr. in 2017 because he's got a daughter with autism, as most people know, who follow him and could explain it, why there's no vaccine link. And they apparently talked quite a bit, according to Dr. Hotez's tweet. So... The absolute dishonesty of some of these people pretending that, like, this man has not been willing to face people who disagree with what he's saying is just absolutely staggering. Like, they want him to debate this guy, and he spent a whole lot of time on the phone with this guy already trying to convince him that this is the way things are. And I just, I'm, I'm floored that this is still a thing. And... I guess my question is, what can you do if you've got one of these people in your family, if you've got somebody who just refuses to buy this, how does one convince these people that maybe they've been sold a bill of goods and that this is safer than they've been led to believe? What do you do? Yeah, so... Just just back to your point uh, about Hotez willing to talk to people. Uh, you know, Dr. Hotez was willing to go on Joe Rogan's podcast just by himself and explain the rationale for, for vaccines. So it wasn't Hotez who chickened out. It was Rogan who chickened out. And it was Rogan who chickened out primarily because having Dr. Hotez on would be kind of boring, probably. It wouldn't be good theater. It wouldn't mm -hmm. be a spectacle. It wouldn't be a show. So how do you talk to people? So it's interesting. There has been some interesting research into this, and it can be very hard, and I try to do this with my patients all the time. And at this point in the pandemic, I think if someone has decided to refuse the COVID vaccine, there's, there, there, there's not much that you can do. And so I, I think one of the best ways is kind of not to play anymore. When I have a patient who tells me they don't want the COVID vaccine, 
I ask why. And at this point, their reason is essentially just because I don't want it. And it, it, trying to convince them to get a COVID vaccine would be like trying to convince me to drink out of the toilet. There, there's just no words that that can be said. Where at the end of the conversation, I'm like, you know what, you made some great points. I'm gonna go drink out of the toilet. So I, I think you have to recognize when people are so dug in that it's kind of in, impossible. And it's also going to be a process that when you can make some inroads into people, they're not going to be changed overnight because most people who are against the COVID vaccine have been a victim of RFK's misinformation. They have come to believe, say, that vaccine myocarditis is a fate worse than death. And they're not going to suddenly hear some magical statistic or fact or study about the vaccine and conclude, aha. Uh, so this has been studied. There have been some great discussions about this I think on the podcast, you're not so smart if you've heard of that one, but it's about human psychology. And it's sort of the first question, the first thing to do is just ask people, what would it take for you to get to vaccinate your child? What sort of evidence would you have to see and really sort of see where they're at? But I think it takes patience. It takes time. It takes understanding when you're doing it on a one-to-one discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to uh, RFK Jr., I, I do think it's notable that even he kind of has tried to back away from the the label of an anti-vaxxer. He's, oh, I, I've not been telling people not to get vaccines. I just tell them to, only the safe vaccines. I just, I want vaccines, but the good vaccines. And we <laughs> see a lot of the tactics that are really common with people who push these beliefs. And I, it, it's just how widespread it is, is, is really concerning to me because I look at someone like Ron DeSantis and he set up this uh, committee in Florida overseen by the the Florida Surgeon General that you mentioned, uh, Joseph Lopato. And DeSantis set up the Public Health Integrity Committee and they're tasked with assessing federal decisions, recommendations and guidance related to public health and health care. But you're rather familiar, I believe, with with the members of this committee and how frequently they've expressed anti-vaccine sentiments. We've had people try to argue with us that DeSantis is, oh, he's not anti-vax. He's just, he wants to take on big pharma. He wants to just get the good vaccines, get to the truth. But really, these are these are just very similar tactics and, and ways that I think these ideas get mainstream. We don't see a lot of people coming out and saying, oh, uh, don't take any vaccines. Vaccines are bad. Because if you're having that conversation with someone who's not already, you know, heard these talking points and found found common cause of these beliefs, they're going to think that's crazy. It's a popular tactic because this is how they draw people in. Yeah, because who can be against just asking questions? Mm -hmm. Who can be against more research? Who can be against wanting to make vaccines as safe as possible. But some of the doctors on his commission were some of the we want them infected doctors. Dr. Martin Kuldorf, for example, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya were two of the three authors of the so-called Great Barrington Declaration, which was published in October 2020. And this was the purposeful movement, again, to spread COVID wildly and hundreds of millions of unvaccinated Americans with the idea that once we were all infected, herd immunity would arrive and our grandparents could emerge from their bunker and the pandemic would be over. 
And once vaccines became available, they continued to double down on their ideas. They authored an article uh, in the publication The Hill in two years ago, exactly, uh, June 17th, 2021, called The Ill-Advised Push to Vaccinate the Young, they, which began. The idea that everyone must be vaccinated against COVID is as misguided as the anti-vax idea that no one should. The former is more dangerous for public health. So they felt that it was more dangerous to vaccinate everyone against COVID than to vaccinate no one. And they used nonsense ideas or rationales as to why uh, unvaccinated children should get COVID. They said things like, well, anyone can get infected. The old have a thousandfold higher mortality risk than the young. In other words, as long as COVID is more dangerous for grandma, we should let some children suffer and die. And there's no way that these pro-infection doctors are going to review the data honestly and report on it honestly and report on it seriously. As I said to you before, there's a 25 studies from around the world showing that the vaccine has already limited rare but grave harms in children. These doctors will pretend those studies don't exist. They are just unmentionable studies. And again, yeah, it's going to bleed into measles. It's going to bleed into HPV and chickenpox and polio. And we're going to see a return of those, some of those diseases, I am, I'm afraid. I hope not. Whooping cough and diphtheria too. <laughs> so how unprepared do you think we're going to be if another pandemic happens like this? Oh, we're doomed. I mean, if it happens in the next 30 years or so, uh, I, I think we're in big trouble. Things have become so polarized and our national public health leaders tell people to socially distance for COVID 2025. Half of the country is going to go inside gyms and have coughing parties and spit and cup and drink it parties. Uh, so, so I think that we're, we're in big trouble and public health departments are having their powers stripped. They are having their money taken from them. They were never deluged with money uh, to, to, to begin with. And a lot of public health workers have quit. They have been the subject of harassment. People have shown up outside their houses and, and sent them threatening letters. And a, a lot of people decide that they don't need that anymore, that they don't want that anymore. And I, I don't blame them. I mean, I, I'm a little bit of a Twitter addict, I admit it, but I'm thinking, <laughs> that, you know, who needs this? Like, why do I need, when I post a study saying, the vaccine is safe in young children. Why do I need people telling me that I'm going to be part of Nuremberg part two and I've killed people and I killed people with intubations during the first wave? You know, I, I just don't need that. And so I think we're going to be in big trouble when, when a lot of doctors and public health professionals don't think that it's worth, worth the problem anymore. And we've already seen that our country is willing to tolerate hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths and people are willing to overlook that. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Looking forwards. Well, Dr. Howard, thank you very much for coming on with us today. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on and explain some of this and talk about why this is just such a horrific idea to give these people any more of a platform than they've already got. You have any more books coming out? You have anything coming out in the future that you want to talk about? Only on science-based medicine, where, uh, where I write once or twice per week for free. You know, in order for me to write a book, I have to feel that I have something new and unique to say. And I think I've done that. And we'll see if anything else pops my way. But you can continue to follow my pandemic musings uh, on science-based medicine. That's probably the best place. Excellent. Yeah, it's a wonderful website. There's a lot of good stuff on that. And we'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes. So, again, doctor, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. And you have a great rest of your day. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to know that I have allies and people like you who are you know, fighting the same fight. Thank you so much. Indeed. Absolutely. Keep it up, sir. Take Thanks it. so much. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.